Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're <laughs> listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. Joining me to break down your week in media and marketing is Mumbrella's editor Vivian Kelly. Hi, Tim. News editor Paul Wallbank. Hello, Tim. And our advertising and comms reporter Abigail Dawson. Hi, Tim. And a little bit later, we'll be joined by Think TV's CEO Kim Portrait, where we'll be discussing Ten's split from MCN. Oh, I don't know that they got divorced. I think um, they had an amicable separation. Advertising Week's controversial Me Too panel. Lou Barrett started talking about how uh, it's not a man's job to make space for women or or to make women an equal. Uh, Women have to do that themselves. And the future of TV ratings. You can keep measuring things, but until you've got a better way to measure things, people will do what they do in a vacuum, which is make the best of the information they've got. Plus. Telstra's CMO Joe Pollard moves on. The news website that banned men for a month. Vegemite's first ad since it changed agencies. So, it's been another massive week in media and marketing. It really all kicked off pretty much first thing on Monday morning with Joe Pollard leaving what's arguably the biggest marketing role in Australia, Chief Marketing Officer of Telstra, and all things media content as well. Um... Paul, this was part of a wider shake-up. What is actually going on at Telstra? So the big problem with Telstra, like a lot of the telcos in Australia, has been that their margins are slipping and they are desperately trying to find ways of reinventing themselves in a post-SMS and broadband and uh, mobile rich revenue environment. And, of course, the MBN is smashing their revenues too. So Andy Penn has decided to restructure into six separate business units along with three back office units and in that role in that redistribution there was no role for a cmo anymore yes and one of the other things we saw out of media world was michael abid former sbs boss coming uh, coming into telstra that's right and he's in as head of enterprise now it's interesting with that because prior to his roles at the abc and sbs he was with optus for 10 years in a very very similar role at uh, at the number two telco so this isn't um it is an unusual move it isn't a surprising move in retrospect because he does have some experience in this. No, and I suppose um, going back to Joe Pollard, one of the kind of the one of the big beasts out there in in uh, in the marketing world, looking for for another role uh, with a fairly uh, deep, uh, if it deep is the right word, uh, LinkedIn profile. <laughs> That's right. Well, former head of Publicis Mojo here in Sydney and CEO of Nine MSN, the former Nine uh, Microsoft joint venture there, and uh, so yeah, very deep. Deep background, uh, global head of uh, Nike in one of their business divisions too. Yes, on the media side, if I remember rightly. So um, it'll be interesting to see where, if anywhere, she ends up. We uh, we've recently started a whiteboard in the office. Of uh, uh, there are two columns. Uh, av- uh, <laughs> Big vacancies and unemployed executives. So we've got one more to add to the list. Um, Abby, um, what does all of this mean for the agency roster because Telstra works with a lot of agencies. Telstra do work with a lot of agencies. Um, arguably, their, their main creative agency, or it is their main creative agency, is the Monkeys, um, which started working with Telstra in 2015, if I stand corrected, which would be um, one year after Joe joined Telstra in 2014. Um Joe has a really good relationship with the Monkeys, certainly with Grant Rutherford, their ECD in Sydney, um, and Mark Green as well, one of the co-founders of the Monkeys. So some people have been questioning if that will affect the relationship between Telstra and the Monkeys. But personally, I mean, I think you have to look at the work that the Monkeys have done for Telstra, which would include Thrive On, Magic of Technology, Together is Magic. And I mean, I think it's the best work that that Telstra's done. Um, and I think that the Monkeys as an agency with the portfolio of work that they've done for Telstra will um, will continue. And why did you like that work? I think that it is good creative work. I mean, that's what the Monkeys are good at. Um, I think it also has a good tagline and I also think it gave Telstra um, something that was a little bit more than just being a telco. Um, you know, I think about Optus and I don't think of the Optus work in the same way as I do as the Telstra work and the PR 
side of things, Telstra recently just appointed WPP and CHE Proximity's Attention and Influence. And Viv, um, yet with Telstra, year after year, you keep you keep hearing, oh, maybe they're going to review OMD and OMD keep regaining it. It must be one of the more stable media agency relationships over the years. Yeah, look, telcos are often criticised for how frequently they change agencies and also how much they break up into sub-brands. So part of this Telstra restructure and the commentary that was going on in our comment thread was, is this going to be a return to Telstra operating different business units and having marketing coming out of those and therefore a sort of fractured brand. Every marketer with their own pet agency. Yes, and and that leads to double ups and it leads to brand confusion and and consumer confusion. So perhaps having a stable media agency relationship helps mitigate that somewhat because goodness knows they don't need more agencies involved in the mix. And what was interesting with that was that I did put that question to Telstra's uh, PR people and they came back saying that that's indeed what they're doing. So each of these six business units is going to have their own role. Though just on what Abby said there, most of those campaigns are really around consumers. So that's that one division that's probably going to step out. Uh, The enterprise one, the one with Michael Abid, you can see a B2B uh, agency coming in, strategies coming in there, but it's really going to be that consumer side where the the big dollars are going to be for the uh, where the big pictures are going to be. And to add to that, Paul, that's sort of to the point that I was making before. Is I think that is what the monkeys do best, and I think it's the work that they do really well. Um, and if it were my guess, that I, I would I would think that they would stay with the monkeys. And let me make a prediction. What, where are we now? We're now into, apparently it's, is it really August already? That's a shock. Okay, it's now August 2018. I predict that before August 2020, we will be covering the story of Telstra's new CMO. The people I spoke to about it said maybe Easter 2020s. Coming up next, what happened when a news website decided to ban all men? So, business website Witch50... And if you're not familiar with the business website Witch50, then it's named after that Lord, famous Lord Leverhulme quote of, I know my advertising works, but I just don't know which half or which 50%. Uh, anyway, the uh, business website Witch50 has just revealed that it ran a month-long experiment last month where it removed all mentions of men from its website. Um, Viv, I did think this was a really interesting idea. Yeah, so look, Witch50 didn't not cover stories which involved men. They still, for example, covered the nine Fairfax merger, but they wouldn't mention Fairfax CEO Greg Highwood by name or nine CEO Hugh Marks by name. Instead, they would just refer to them by their job title or or call them a spokesperson. I'm sure a lot of people will write this off as a stunt, but I love that Witch50 didn't seek publicity for it ahead of time. The rationale was the worst kinds of discrimination happen in the dark. And that's true. Nobody says to the woman, you're going to be paid $20,000 less than your male counterpart because of your body parts and thousands of years of oppression and institutionalised discrimination. Nobody calls a female sports star and says you'll be on page 17 in a tiny column on the left-hand page and you'll be the only female sports star in a 30-page spread. And to expand it to other forms of discrimination, I assume that nobody told AFL player Adam Goods that he'd be called an ape at the 2013 AFL game. Discrimination happens in the dark and when it rears its ugly head, it is a sneak attack. So Witch50 said that they got a lot of pushback from male executives saying, you know, where's my name, what's happening, where's my photo, or actually they said it was often the female publicists who called to chase that up. And their point was, well, how does it feel to be overlooked and how does it feel to have your contribution diminished for something that is totally out of your control? So do you think it worked? Well, I mean, it certainly drove down uh, their traffic, I think they said, and it obviously had implications for SEO. If you're not going to name Hugh Marks and you're not going to name Greg Highwood, it's going to be difficult for an article about a nine Fairfax merger to, you know, please the Google gods. But it certainly caused a discussion. It's definitely put their stake in the ground about what they stand for. And look, people are automatically criticising it, saying it hasn't affected any actual change Change doesn't happen overnight, though, and I think it has made a wider point about how little female voices there are 
and how problematic it is when you do eliminate male voices, how little there is to talk about. Next, the verdict on that new Vegemite work. How do you make Vegemite? Please explain. Well, I'll tell you. You take a bit of this and that just a swig, a couple of these, but make sure they're big. Put it in a pan or a metal container, add a bit of bite and that's a no-brainer. You need texture and colour and plenty of cheese, add this, add that and three or four of these. Yep, yep, all of the above. Yes, 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 spread the love. You need sweet and spicy and plenty of zing. Just a combination of random things. Yep, yep, yeah, you betcha. Hmm, I don't know. Much better. Start this cooking. It's going to get hot. Add a dozen of these or whatever you got. Chop it, slice it, give it a good beat. One of these, two of those, and this will make it sing. Yep, yep, that's not a thing. Add a cup of this and this for a laugh. A whole one of these or maybe just half. Serving suggestion, breakfast, lunch and tea. The finish line's close, just wait until it's free. Follow these instructions, there'll be no failure. It's Vegemite. Tastes like Australia. So for a yeasty spread, Vegemite sure does get a lot of attention. Um, so I guess it's a big deal when Australia's arguably most iconic product as some would say gets a new agency and now we have got to hear and see that first work um abby this is um this is the first work we've seen think about which is the pwc backed relatively new agency um bit of a daunting challenge did they pass it's a big challenge um i know when i think of vegemite i'm a huge vegemite fan when i think of vegemite from a creative's perspective, I mean, that would be one of the brands that I would first want to work with. So, I mean, I'm in two minds about about the campaign. Part of me was quite underwhelmed, um, but another part of me really liked the tagline, Tastes Like Australia, and also the out-of-home billboard executions, um, which one of them said, Tastes like punching a shark in the face during a surf comp, obviously relating to Mick Fanning when he punched the shark. I think... Is it going to drive more sales for Vegemite? I mean, it's not not why I would buy Vegemite. So I'm I'm a little bit a little bit disappointed. I was expecting a little bit more. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the ad to me, a fellow massive Vegemite fan, as you would know, was really quite blokey. There were bits of it that really really amused me, and I thought it was funny. And I love anything that rhymes and any form of alliteration and clever language play that they used. But science still shows that women are the ones in the supermarket making purchase decisions. It's it's going to be the mums on the supermarket run choosing Vegemite or Nutella or peanut butter. Do you think that ad is going to resonate with them or is it too sort of old school Holden ad-esque? You mean meat pies, kangaroos? Yes. I think I, I agree with you. And, and another sort of – disappointment I guess that I had with the ad is is the lack of diversity in the ad as well I think if we look at what Australia is today we are quite a diverse culture and we have worked really hard at that and I think not representing that is is disappointing and and I and I would have liked to see a little bit more of that do I look at that and think wow I'm really proud to be Australian I mean Australia is great and it does represent that old culture but I think that's what it is old culture I suppose my question is if we take this away from sort of I I suppose I I, I think you're advertising creativity and all those things surely the essential brief is let's champion this brand being as australian as possible let's keep reminding people australian ownership now all of those things surely the only way you can go is full australiana i know i'm 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 not I'm not saying that you can't. I think you can, but there I think that there are different ways of doing it. And I and I also have a little bit I suppose not an issue, but everyone knows Vegemite's an Australian brand. I don't think you need to try hard to push that thought. I think of Australia and I think of Vegemite. I just think it's trying too hard to push the fact that it's Australian. I mean, it's Australian. One thing I did quite like about it um, on the website is when you play the when you play the ad on the website. If ever you pause it, whatever point you pause it on, it identifies the person that it's uh, on screen at the time and what their story is. But I would add the reason I know that is because I saw a comment in the comment thread pointing out what a brilliant idea it was. And I do have to say, you do get certain agencies which care a lot about what the industry think. And I must say there are a lot of comments on Campaign Brief. There are a lot of comments on Umbrella really singing its praises. 
And I have to say, a lot of those comments either came from the same IP address or they looked to me like they were people who were hiding their identities on the IP address. I'm not pointing my finger in any directions, but... Two points to your answer there, Tim. The first thing I have to say is from looking at the website. I mean, as a consumer, I would never go to a website for an ad. It's just not something I would do. I mean, of course I do it now um, because of what what I write about. But coming back to the second point of your question, the comment thread. Look, I did have a read through both our comment thread, which may I note has 38 comments, 38 comments on a campaign. That's a fair amount of comments. Um, But I also had a look on campaign briefs comments, to which some of them seemed quite similar, which I think is where my, I sort of raised my eyebrows. Um, And also a little bit cheesy. I just couldn't imagine sort of myself as a commenter jumping on there, sort of phrasing it in some of some of the ways that the commenters did there. But I mean, I haven't checked the IP addresses, so I can't say I know for sure. So, Viv, to, to, to wrap up on Vegemite, um, is this a one-idea campaign or is this something that will go on for years, do you think? Well, look, I couldn't personally tell you when the Vegemite It Puts a Rose in Every Cheek campaign started, but I know that people still use that phrase and I know that people still associate that phrase with the Vegemite brand. I don't know that in 10 or 15 years we'll be walking around saying Vegemite, it tastes like Australia. I think previous campaigns have been much, much stronger. Even the link that Vegemite made to the vitamins that it includes, people make reference to campaigns that have talked about that. I don't know if I'm going to be spreading my toast in the morning in Mumbrella House in 2020 as Abby and I fight after over the last dregs of the Vegemite and she's going to say, oh, give me some of that. It tastes like Australia. Thanks, Tim. I'll let you get back to the news desk. Thank you, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Joining us here at Mumbrella House is Think TV's CEO, Kim Portrait. Now, you may remember Kim from such Mumbrella casts as the Mumbrella 360 Wheel of Truth. Viv is still with us, and also with us for this conversation is our senior media reporter, Zoe Samios. Now, Kim's job is to convince marketers and media agencies of the benefits of advertising on television. This week's been another busy one for you, Kim. You've launched new research. Two of your stakeholders announced a bit of a divorce and you're on a very controversial panel at Advertising Week. Where do we start? Let's start with the research. Let's start with the research. The simplest of the topics. Right. Okay. Um, Can I tell you my problem with this sort of research? Far away. Let's have the philosophical conversation because it feels like it's one I've been having with myself for the last 15 years at least. I'm thinking back to my days in other magazines, my days even in writing about it in other markets. It feels like one of the regular staples as a trade press journal is press releases about a particular medium and a particular piece of research which demonstrates incontrovertibly with really high-class research standards, world-leading bodies behind the research, that their medium is the best for the specific thing they're testing. And always we get the comment in the comment thread, and it goes back to even before we had comment threads, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? Yeah, look, and I would say that's a perfectly legitimate question and concern. Obviously, the research that's conducted, you know, it varies in quality. The one thing I would say is Think TV, and I'm an ex-marketer, so I asked exactly the same questions for many years, The way we approach research, as you know, is we look at expert, independent academics. So we're really careful about, A, who we partner with. And in this instance, the person we've worked with has done work for Unilever, for Mars, for Google. This is Karen Nelson-Field. Professor Nelson-Field out of Adelaide. Awesome researcher, awesome presenter. Yeah. So what we do, though, is we approach a bit differently because we were very concerned about exactly the issue you raised. It's like television coming to market with research that says that television is great. You know, that, that lends itself to criticism. So we don't brief Karen on this is the way we want you to do it or this is the answer we're expecting or this is the topic we're exploring. What we do to her and what we have done to her over three series 
of the same research is say, and I'll talk about the decay work specifically, we would like to understand more about reach. Our industry, television, is a business that is in the business of reach because audiences are about monetization. Can you help us understand reach in its broadest sense? So the way and the, the way she conducts it and the results she does, we then don't see her for about six months. So other than here's the question, can you answer the question for us, she then goes away and designs her work, her electronic apps, her environment, and she's so rigorous. Then she comes back and she gives us the answer. Um, and, and the other thing I think that is, is interesting about the work we've done is we have a responsibility to the community to be transparent about the information we've got. So we publish without fear or favour. And not this study, but there was one um, at the end of last year in a category where television wasn't the strongest performing media, and we published that as well. So, you know, to the listeners of the podcast and the readers of Umbrella, totally understand the criticism. There is no way I can convince a person that thinks that it's biased, that it's not biased, other than explain how we do it. And then people will decide. And I think the other part of it is you conduct the research, you have to do it in a rigorous and disciplined and ethical way. You publish the results. Um, and if people have got a question about the results, you answer them. So, uh, look, I, I totally understand what you're saying. Before we get into this tranche of the research, do you get an ROI on that research? Um, not specifically, no. I think because that part of our business is very much focused on, and it's called the Benchmark Series. For many years, television had no advocacy group. Uh, and so there are a number of questions that we all took as myth, myself and others included. And I asked the question when we started, can you prove that your reach is better than somebody else's reach? Can you prove um, that visibility is important? Can you prove? So that it's really about the mythology that we use. We need to examine that. We need to interrogate that. And those things that prove to be true and can be empirically validated state and some of the things that we thought we were we're not and those things move away and you you know if you can't prove it you shouldn't be talking about it and anecdotally are your members um telling you that this information is actually informing their conversations with customers oh yeah absolutely and, and so we don't just run a research program when we get the results we obviously talk to the industry but we also take uh, the frontline sales teams of our shareholders through that research and we're trying to always improve the total quality of the industry. And so there are many, many conversations that go on in meeting rooms where we go and present the information and we get interrogated and we get asked questions from the frontline teams because, you know, having information that people can't use, well, that's a novel. Well, you've just, uh, you just touched on sort of this, this, this latest sort of wave or tranche or whatever you choose to call it with the yep. benchmark series. Do you want to talk through the, 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 the key bullet points of it? Sure, thank you. Um, well, look, the key issue was talk to us about reach, let us understand how reach works and is there such a thing as better reach? Um, so Karen, I won't go through the methodology. I, I think I've shown that methodology video to pretty much every human in the entire marketing community over the last six months. What she did was she examined the impact of sales not necessarily awareness, but obviously those two things are linked, but quite specifically a short-term and a long-term sales metric versus other forms of video advertising. And so what they worked out was that television stays in the mind 109 days after transmission, which means that if you're talking to a consumer who's coming into a market or out of a market, that you've got better uh, capacity for them to remember you when they go to the supermarket shelf or the petrol station. Uh, and that was substantially better than other video platforms. And with consumers, and I'll bring in Viv and Zoe on this in a minute as well, I guess one of the challenges is, is they don't even always know themselves the processes are going through. I remember you, you um, at the launch of Think TV, you brought over uh, Tess Alps from PhD, and she played a great video of research they'd done. And, uh, and they kind of early in the video, they had uh, just a member of the public talking about how she doesn't listen to advertising. And then a bit later, they played a clip of her saying she bought a new car. If I remember rightly, it was a Renault. 
And then a bit later they asked her, well, you know, have you seen any ads for Renaults? And she was like, oh, yeah, it's about the time I bought my new car. <laughs> of course, got a big laugh in the room. Of course. But, but, the, but the point is, when you ask consumers if they're influenced by advertising, they don't always actually know the answer. Well, and I think most people have got a lot going on in their day. You know, if you asked a mother with two kids, you know, did you see the banana ad? The, the, the most likely answer is no, because there's other things to be worried about. But we clearly know that advertising generally – media specifically, has a positive impact on the sales of brands. And so something must be going on in the minds of consumers, whether that's at the top of the mind or at the bottom. Viv, let me bring you in. Your your views on the research, you're, you're, you're like the ultimate gatekeeper for Mumbrella, I suppose, in deciding what goes into the, the newsletter on any given day. Well, during the um, advertising week this week, you guys had Mark Ritson present at a dinner and one of the things he did at the dinner was show the effectiveness of television by making us all watch the movie Gone with the Wind Facebook style. So this was we all watched the movie for six seconds and then he reduced it down to 50% pixels and did all the things that he flagged are wrong with Facebook advertising and he was sort of like, okay, great, you've seen the movie, the end. And obviously Mark Ritson being Mark Ritson, he did it with a lot of flair and it got a lot of laughs. And what was the best profanity he used? He kept swearing to a minimum actually, I think under Kim's instruction. Uh, but one of the things that I would sort of contest against that as amusing and entertaining as it was is I don't think anyone's going to Facebook to watch Gone with the Wind. So as demonstrative as that was and it doesn't actually indicate how people are feeling or what they're consuming because I'm not going to sit down on my mobile phone and watch Gone with the Wind. Yep. So ads on Facebook are, are built differently than ads for television. So I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, Kim, on on sort of Mark's presentation and, and what we can take away from that aside from the funny Gone with the Wind anecdote. Yeah. So Mark did do a great job last night and, you know, he is theatrical and he's entertaining. And one of the things I like about him is he's got a very incisive mind but he's able to take – pretty complex, dry content and make it interesting. That aside, I totally agree people aren't on Facebook watching Gone with the Wind. But I think it does illustrate the point. And the point he was trying to make was if you think that your brands are connecting either at a brand building or a performance level on Facebook, because of the speed of the scroll, it's probably not. And uh, I was actually in London last year um, at the Future of TV event in London and some of the Facebook country people from the UK spoke and they said there is an Eiffel Tower of content created every day on Facebook in everybody's feed. So that's a lot of stuff to get through. I take your point, you know, are you sitting there looking at it as an ad or is it a connectivity, social kind of medium? And that's fair. He said the biggest issue they were working on was the speed with which young people scroll faster. <laughs> so apparently, well, I'm old – Apparently people my age scroll much slower, so we're better value. <laughs> but young people are scrolling past and still it gets back to kind of actually Karen's first round of work for us, which is if you can't see it, it can't imprint, it can't connect. Now whether that engages you fully, um, I've just been enamoured recently with the Westpac moustache. I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's just a beautiful story. Uh, and look, I saw that on television, but if I'd seen it on other places, I would have stopped and watched. So I think creativity is really important in those mediums. But ultimately, if people can't see your messages, the chance that they're going to get their attention and that they're going to do something as a result, whether they remember to Tim's point or not, um, that's still really important. And I think, you know, Gone with the Wind is probably an epic film that doesn't belong on Facebook, <laughs> but um, I hope the Facebook guys don't disagree with me. But certainly I think the point is visibility and being able to actually consume the content that the brand wants to share with you, that that I think is uh, still important. Well, just before I bring in Zoe, one other point: the uh, point the um, so there's the CEO's dinner, which 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 you were at, which is the event you were talking about. Uh, Tim Warner had some interesting uh, comments, which you, you you wrote about as well. Yes, so on a panel of the TV executives, including Ten CEO Paul Anderson, Foxtel CEO Patrick Delaney, Nine slash Fairfax CEO Hugh Marks, and uh, Seven CEO Tim Warner. Tim basically said that we need to ditch overnight ratings because they don't accurately reflect the number of people who are watching any given program. 
when he was pushed by the moderator, the Australian Financial Review's managing editor, Joanne Gray, on, well, people are catching up always. So when would you ever report the number? Because people might watch something a year later. So how can you possibly draw a line in the sand if you're trying to say there's catch-up numbers? And Tim's argument was 28 days is sufficient and we should ditch overnight ratings because it's painting an inaccurate uh, view of television and it's it's making everyone think that less people are watching than they actually are. I thought it was a pretty bold but not totally unexpected comment from Tim. Uh, we've had some feedback on that article today, though, of media people saying, no, but I still do care about overnight ratings because if I book a spot on television, I want to know how many people watched it at that exact moment. So I don't know that everyone's agreed on the solution just yet. So let me start by saying I I 100% agree with Tim. I think in a business where your role is to make great content and monetize it, understanding your total audience is really important. I also understand the media buyers who want to know what that spot on that show did last night. So I think the balance lies somewhere in between the two. Uh, 28 days, interestingly enough, is kind of the industry standard. So if you look at Barb and people like that internationally, it's sort of that's where they kind of close the loop in terms of do you count as part of the audience. But there's also a 14-day window, a seven-day window, and then there's obviously live. And what we see from Oztam is that the majority of the catch-up viewing is done within 24 hours, quite a lot. Um, so to Tim's point, I do think that, and I think Think TV have got a job to do in this, to provide the market and the media press with a, a relevant way to report the audiences. And I think that includes a call out on yesterday. Um, and look, most of the networks will do that for you anyway, if you call them. But as the industry body, a full representation of the audiences probably capped at 28 days, because I suppose in a month cycle, um, if you're selling something, that's probably about a reasonable window, a four week period, a buying period. Well, Zoe, I'm going to bring you in at this point. You, you, it's usually you who writes the TV ratings mm. on any given morning. One of the thoughts that occurs to me is like, I, I totally get the logic of what Tim Warner's saying, but if if the the trade press, for instance, this is more of a trade press question, were to stop writing every morning about the TV rating, at the moment, there's a really good reminder to the world about the power of television. Once every six or seven weeks, we write about the radio ratings. Once in a blue moon, we write about outdoor. Every single morning, we write, we write about the TV ratings. Do you think there'd be a sort of loss of visibility for television if we weren't doing that every day? Potentially, yes. I mean, I don't think, I think if we actually stopped and I stopped reporting those overnight ratings and as much as all the TV execs like to say that they'd probably like to to focus on other things like broadcast video on demand, when a big uh, finale like a MasterChef or a Ninja Warrior happens, they love to promote that number. So we can sit here and pretend that they want to get rid of it completely, but we know that if it works in the favour of any company, they are going to push it out. I think that by cutting back, and we have talked about how we, we look at reporting as the media is changing and how, you know, we're talking about more cross-platform shows, how we report, but I and think... And also network share is something we have a lot of conversations too. around internally. Network share too. So obviously most, uh, all of the networks have multi-channels. It's not just about the main channel. So I don't think it's a matter of, you know, cutting back and, and not write, reporting overnight. I think it's about expanding um, the coverage. And I think, Kim, this week we were we were talking about, um, you know, Oztam and Nielsen were talking about the launch of, uh, is it Virtual Australia? I keep asking everyone. It's Virtual Australia, yeah. but Voz is the short form. Voz is the short form. It sounds very Oztam, Voz. Yeah. Um, and, and when you they're talking about a total TV database there. So when you've got other metrics potentially coming in, Maybe we change the way we report it, but as it stands, I think removing the overnight ratings won't do TV any good. Well, Kim, well, I have one other bugbear. Every single TV executive I talk to from all of the networks always say, this 40-week ratings year is completely outdated. We battle every year. <sighs> I don't know why it's still there. I think you guys are the people who are the committee for Oztam. If you actually had anything other than, than inertia – it would be gone. Why Why do we still work to a 40-week ratings year? The audience is there for the other 12 weeks. I don't know. And what will sure. it take to change it? Um, well, I think, I think it is changing. I think if you look at, and I don't want to get too technical with your listeners, but Oztem measures overnights and then 7 and 14 and 28 days. Separate to that, it also has been measuring devices, 
but there wasn't demographic information attached to that. So the installation of streaming meters is going to fix the second problem, which means that we'll now be able to understand who's watching what, irrespective of what they're watching it on, inside the house and outside the house. So we've got work to do as an industry, which we're starting to pull together, which will give you a complete view. And I think prime time is any time. You know, that was a conversation we had this morning um, and Viv was in the room where if a consumer can choose to watch anything they want, whenever they want, however they want, you know, your, your point about a 40-week cycle and me with no knowledge of what recasting that would look like and at the risk of upsetting more people than I know, um, it would seem to me that you can keep measuring things but until you've got a better way to measure things, people will do what they do in a vacuum which is make the best of the information they've got. I was going to add to that too. I think, and I see this with radio as well, when every t- breakfast radio host and drive show host vanishes for two weeks in July and you're going, oh, where as an audience and as a consumer before I started at Mumbrella, I had no idea where everyone had gone. I couldn't work out why my radio hosts weren't on TV or at the end of the year why the television shows significantly well, the quality of television shows significantly reduced and it was just, you know, a lot of sport and I didn't get to see the the big um, shows that I saw in the beginning of the year. I think we've so wrapped around this idea of a ratings thing that we're forgetting that the people that we're producing these things for are for audiences and the audiences don't even know that the ratings exist except with the occasion that a, a news.com or a Sydney Morning Herald picks it up to, to talk about when a show's not performing. So, I just don't get the concept of bringing into this period and then, you know, not forgetting about what's happening outside of it but not worrying as much makes any sense when ultimately the consumer is going to be around all year round. So, Zoe, are you advocating that radio hosts get no holidays? No, I'm not at all, but I'm just saying that, you know, it happens all at once. Um, We all work the whole year through. I think, you know, everyone's going to go on holidays at some point or another. What I'm seeing though is a mass exodus at certain periods of time. And it actually, it's not, oh, okay, Today FM's breakfast show is um, off today. It's, oh, Today FM's breakfast show is off, Kiss FM's Nova. Like everyone vanishes at the same time. Kim, I guess effectively it's a bit of an armistice, isn't it, between the industry. How does that serve the audience though? Well, if you're a cricket lover or a tennis lover, January is amazing. Uh, I think some of the content that, that Zoe's talking about, perhaps some of the genres like drama and those kinds of big tentpole shows, you know, one of the things I would say is at that time of the year, the radio show hosts and the audiences are at the beach. You know, so obviously you've got to figure out how to monetize your content in the most sensible way. But I do hear you. I think it's a re- I think it's a sensible conversation. So I'll take that one on notice um, and see if I can't come back to you with some feedback from the industry. You'll be very welcome. Now, you, you, you referred to the fact that um, uh, Vivian was at uh, the Advertising Week conference this week, saw a few panels, including the, uh, the female power players panel. You were one participant. Uh, Lou Barrett was from News Corp was another. Let's just hear a little clip from what Lou had to say. I think the only ones who have done well out of the Me Too movement are the black dress designers. <laughs> like, I, I, I think it's, you know, I'm, I'm probably saying the wrong thing, but I, I just... <laughs> you think? <laughs> So Vivian, you were an audience member for uh, for what what became quite a controversial panel, I think. Uh, talk me through first of all your reaction, the reaction of the person who happened to be sitting next to you. So it was a female power players session, which I was looking forward to. It, it featured Kim, who's here today, and Lou Barrett from News Corp, Alexandra Sloan from Facebook and Nicola Lewis from Group M, and it was moderated by B&T's Daisy Doctor. Some really, really interesting things were said, and and I love that when powerful women are given the chance to speak. What caught me off guard, I guess, was uh, when Lou Barrett started talking about how uh, it's not – a man's job to make space for women or, or to make women an equal. Uh, women have to do that themselves. Now, that's a view that I personally disagree with because I feel that to reach equality, somebody has to give something up uh, because we have to occupy a space that we currently don't have access to. So to make room, maybe a man who's a bit undeserving of a job will next time not get the job because I will or a person of colour will. 
So that caught me a bit off guard. And then what sort of really threw me was when Lou, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, said that the only people to benefit from the hashtag MeToo movement were the designers of black dresses, which was a reference to sort of people in Hollywood going to award ceremonies, sporting black attire rather than more colourful flair to sort of show their solidarity for women who've been harassed and assaulted. Uh, I, at the time, felt like the room didn't massively react and I got to the end of the session and I went, oh, okay, maybe I'm the only one that was that thought that was a bit odd. Uh, a woman next to me, however, noticed that I'd been recording the session and asked me if I was a journalist and then said that she'd had a problem with that element of the conversation as well. And now that I've done the story on Mumbrella, obviously the comment thread's going off a bit and, and, and calling out uh, the panellists uh, for their, their privilege uh, and the fact that they're all well-educated white women and and that perhaps those comments aren't reflective of some women who've had more difficult struggles so that's that's what happened and I've, I've since heard that a lot of people in the room did share the same sentiment as me uh so I guess I misread the room a bit at the time feeling that I was the only one who'd been a bit confronted by it uh so yeah Kim I'd, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts as you were the one who was on stage and in the thick of it yeah, so I made the comment yesterday, and I think you guys covered it, around diversity needing to be a broader conversation. Uh, and that's not about men or women or um, race or religion or sexual orientation. And I firmly believe that. And I made that statement yesterday. I think, you know, Lou Barrett, who I know well, is a great woman. And I'm sure tongue in cheek, you know, that's Lou. She's got a big personality. So one of the things I would say is the point she was trying to make was that she personally has always felt that she was given equal opportunity. Now, you can't argue with that because that's Lou's experience. Whether you like that or not, it is still her experience. So I think Lou was making the point that the best person for the job, which is also the point that Nicola Lewis made, which was meritocracy. I mean, we we spoke of quotas, we spoke of balance. Um, we probably didn't talk enough about a broader diversity question. Um, as for being, you know, kind of old, educated, white, I mean, there's nothing I can do about that. I am who I am. Um, but, you know, you raise a really good point and potentially um, I do quite a lot of work with Adweek. I actually think that panel might have been stronger if we had, and if they wanted to speak specifically to women, women of colour would have been great, Um, women of different orientation. And perhaps, you know, it's the first year. Perhaps we didn't get it 100% right, you know, as a panel to help guide younger folk. Perhaps that's something we do next. Yeah, I guess some of the criticism that's been uh, levied at at the session, in particular Lou, is that it's perfectly valid for her experience that, she, and it's fantastic that she feels that she's been supported. And she said nobody has actively tried to derail her career or bring her down. And you know, she said she's a she's not backwards in coming forward. She she demands the same rights and and she gets them and she's paid well and and she's treated well. And that's fantastic to hear. But I think some people felt like in doing that and promoting her excellent experience, she was almost saying, well, if everyone just did what I did it would be fine. Perhaps that wasn't her intent, but some of the sort of quotes come across as her saying, all right, well, if women just demand more and if women are just as confident and loud and hilarious as me, then they'll just be as successful. Whereas I think that probably overlooked some of the institutionalised sexism and discrimination that happens. And if everyone's not starting on the same playing field, they're not even going to get in that door to be bolshy and to demand anything because they don't even they don't even get a look in. Perhaps they're in a wheelchair. Perhaps it's very obvious that they're from the sort of LGBTIQ community so I think her experience fantastic and it's so good for her and, and we can learn from her and we, we should learn from her, but I guess not everybody can have what Lou Barrett has at the moment. Totally agree, totally agree. And, and I do think, though, if, you know, as a young woman you're sitting in, in listening to that panel and feeling disempowered because you are in a situation where uh, for whatever reason you feel discriminated against or you don't have the confidence to ask, you know, for a salary increase. I mean, you and I have spoken about this before you know, that's sad and we need to do something about that as an industry. Uh, You know, perhaps a better session is how to overcome asking for a raise 
or how to make sure my voice is heard uh, in a smaller kind of workshop group as opposed to, a, you know, an industry panel attended by 300 people. Perhaps it's not the right venue to provide that kind of coaching. Um, and, you know, I've spoken at Mumbrella 360 on this very topic and said, if you are a person, a woman or a man, quite frankly, feeling that way, reach out and talk to somebody, you know, find, call me, you know, call the press, call you, because it's a situation that we can't tolerate as an industry, um, largely because the people we serve, uh, you know, don't all look um, homogeneous. Well, I want to maximise the time we have with you, Kim, because there was a lot going on in TV this week. Um, Zoe, we, we, we saw some numbers on uh, TV revenue share for the uh, for the, the financial year just gone and for the uh, for the half up to the end of June. Um Everyone's a winner, apart from ten. It's always the way, isn't it? But ten, ten is the winner in the, in what they define to be important. As is seven and nine, it's always the case. Uh, I guess I can give top line figures um, for those who haven't read the story this morning. But uh, for fiscal year twenty eighteen, uh, total advertising revenue for television was up. That excludes SBS, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yes, important note. Uh, f- to it was up zero point five percent to. Four point one five billion. So would that be the first time TV's had above four billion revenue? It's certainly, in recent certainly years. A, a positive result. So we've got that, and then obviously we um, always love to get the breakdown, which uh, we managed to this time. And so, share tends to lag audience, doesn't it? By yes, a few months. yes, it does. It does. So for for FY eighteen, nine contributed thirty eight point six percent of total revenue. Uh, and and seven was just behind, which we kind of knew was going to happen based off uh, some of the the programming from last year. To, so they were on a thirty eight point one percent share, and then ten share was twenty three point three. So a little bit behind, but it's always sort of been the case. Even when you talk about TV ratings every night, when you talk about audience share, not revenue share, you have nine and seven really closely competing, and then and ten sort of the the one behind. So you have that, and then the additional context was this week we've seen. Uh, MCN, which multi, used to be called the multi-channel network, which sprang out of Foxtel. Effectively, it used to be the sales body for subscription television, became the sales body for 10 as well. They go in their own separate ways. CBS said this week it was time, who owned 10? It was time for a parting of the ways. I'm so surprised that the rumors that have circulated since CBS took over 10 are true. Uh, so, Basically, what happened this week, uh, the Australian came out saying that 10 was about to ditch or terminate the deal early uh, with MCN. That was uh, that then led to obviously a number of news outlets, including us writing that through. Uh, we actually went out with it, uh, you know, linking to another article. And very quickly after that, uh, a panel at Advertising Week, because I think everything's about Advertising Week this week, uh came out and said if you if you haven't received Umbrella's uh email three minutes ago, we, we might as well address the elephant in the room. And which this is Rod Prosser from Tan who was the, talking. Well that was actually Nicola Lewis who uh is the chief investment officer at Group M who announced it and then uh Rod Prosser who I think his new title is Chief Sales Officer actually or it will be uh and Mark Frame, the new CEO of MCN were able to explain it. But Viv was actually in the room so she can probably provide more detail on that. Yes. So uh it's always interesting when you're in a room and the, the moderator gives you a shout out and, and 300 heads turn turn to look at you and everyone whips out their phone to go to mumbrella.com.au. Uh, obviously, our, our newsletter had, had just hit everyone's inboxes and, you know, respect to the panel, they acted very quickly and sort of reframed what they were going to talk about and said, all right, let's just address the gigantic elephant in the room. We've got two key people from these two key companies up here on stage, Let, let's talk about it. And uh, Rod from 10 was very, very clear that, you know, there's no drama, there's no gossip. This is about... Well, some drama. I know it's expensive, <laughs> but, you know, they'll commission a little bit. <laughs> I think he meant drama in terms of, you know, the the, the trade press and, and their speculation about what's gone down between the two companies. He said... It, this is about CBS taking control. It's about CBS bringing what they can to the market. You know, he said there's no ill will. They're going to keep working with MCN until the end of the year. He thanked MCN for the hard work that they'd done and what they'd achieved together. But I think it's, it's really CBS's first big move in terms of since they've taken over 10, everyone's been saying, what's CBS going to do? So many other local networks here 
have already licensed CBS programs like The Big Bang Theory, so 10 can't automatically snap up CBS's programs. People want to know what's going to happen with CBS All Access here. So it does feel like the termination of the MCN agreement is CBS sort of drawing a line in the sand and, and starting to make its mark locally. So Zoe, you you chatted to, to, to Rob this week and you also chatted to Paul Anderson 10's uh, CEO. You raised the question of CBS amongst other CBS access amongst other things. Yes, and they said that the the process of you know bringing CBS was underway. It was still they were still in discussions. But I think what we can take from this week is that CBS's strategy is a lot clearer now. We obviously have seen a little bit with the pilot week that's about to launch on Channel Ten. We've seen a few productions coming in, which sort of makes sense. But I think you know the discussions of CBS All Access and uh, CBS's. Uh, using their technological capabilities to, to help 10 um, from a sales perspective definitely shows that there is obviously a commitment to the Australian market. And, and what did they say to you about the technological side of things? They didn't go into too much date, detail. It's it's very top level. So I think it's – I can't remember the exact name, but CBS Interactive's technology that they – that the back end that they use. Uh, this to, will be effectively to deliver their version of addressable TV. Yes, exactly. Um, so they'll be working on that and, and – and, sort of infiltrating that into 10, but obviously all of this is very early days. The The deal with uh, MCN doesn't finish uh, or the new sales team doesn't start till January 1 next year. So, Kim, so. It, must, it must always be heartbreaking when two members of the family divorce. <laughs> oh, I don't know that they got divorced. I think um, they had an amicable separation. It was a... Conscious uh, uncoupling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you know, we addressed it. I was actually on that panel this morning with, with Viv in the room. Um, I thought the shout-out to Mumbrella was great, though. I was like, <laughs> okay, let's see what happens next. Um, and we did have a conversation beforehand and just went, look, the the, the four board members of Think TV are pragmatic men. Um, businesses do things, they change, they change constantly. Television, as Zoe will testify, you know, is changing constantly. So it wasn't a big deal. It was more a matter of we've got an audience in the room, let's show them the respect that they deserve and, you know, address the address the elephant in the room, which is here's the latest piece of news. If we'd been sitting in that panel last week, it would have been a different shareholder, you know, doing a different thing. But but television continues to to move at pace. They they did uh, joke that they just wanted to steal the limelight back from Nine and Fairfax and, you know, they, they needed some time in the sun and some time in the headline. And then the question was put to Kurt Burnett of Seven, well, Kurt, what are you going to do? You know, you need to start generating some headlines because TV is just – going mental at the moment. So I'll be interested to see what, what Seven does next week. To- Speaking of Kurt, I think we'll hope to get him in for a, a Mumbrella cast fairly soon. That's the plan. Kurt, consider yourself invited. Uh, and speaking <laughs> of time, uh, Kim, we are at it. Thank you. It's such a busy week. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that wraps things up for this week. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again next week. Toodle pip. Toodle pip.